Welcome to the only episode I'm going to do this week. My mother passed away 11 months ago. I just finished today, or I will finish later today, saying Kaddish for her. In honor of the end of Kaddish, I wanted to do what is called in Judaism a siyum. It's where we we finish studying a book, a text. This siyum is not going to be a siyum based on a standard text that is read and studied in this way. Uh, a proper siyum involved completing uh, a large block of the Talmud or the Mishnah. Instead, this siyum is going to be based on finishing the study of one of my mother's books. This speech that I'm going to give you, that I'm going to share, was actually written to be delivered on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat afternoon, at an event honoring my mother and her work. But I want to share it with you here as well, because I think you'll enjoy it. Last week when I was envisioning this talk, I dreamed that it was actually my mother giving this talk. I dreamed that she was speaking and that she was sharing her thoughts. When she spoke in my dream, she opened by summarizing the year. She said simply, on the negative side of things, I died, but there have been many blessings too. I dreamed that she would be delivering the speech, and as you will see, I think she actually is. Before I get to summarizing her philosophy, I want to summarize her life. Hanukkah's the woman must be understood before you can fully appreciate her philosophy. My mother lived an almost unbelievable life. She grew up a communist intellectual. She abandoned communism early on because of lessons learned at communist youth camp. She wasn't the kind of person who was easy to bend. She was bullheaded. When she went to graduate school, she was seeking a man who was even stronger than her. But that was hard to find. The Jewish academics around her just didn't qualify. But then she found my father. He was a bullheaded man seeking a woman who could challenge him. As he tells it, he slept on a doorstep for a month before she agreed to let him in. Together they moved to the Idaho wilderness, ten hours from the nearest town. They ate bears and mountain lions. They built their own hydroelectric system and house. They suffered the privations of nature, and they lost their eldest son. My mother wrote a book about that time, which we are also republishing. After they left the river, they moved to Portland, Oregon, but they worked in the Canadian Arctic, north of the tree line. My mother found kindred souls among the Inuit. Together, they laughed at the gullibility of anthropologists who could not begin to understand people like them. In time, my mother returned to academia. She was the only professor of general studies at her college. She was in that department because she didn't fit anyplace else. My mother was a generalist. She was a Renaissance woman. And my mother remained a teacher, changing lives in her way for the rest of her life. She was teaching until the very day she was diagnosed with cancer and hospitalized. Her magnum opus, the book I will be sharing today, is titled Reflections on the Logic of the Good. I was involved in the writing of this book. I edited early versions of most of the chapters, but I had never read the whole book as published until now. Currently, the book costs over $900 on Amazon. If you want to learn more after this talk, wait a month. We're republishing it, and it will be available for under 15 my mother opened her book with Plato's Republic. Plato captured the core of every utopian dream. He wrote, Temperance works in a different way. It spreads literally throughout the whole gamut of the city, bringing about unison, as in the singing of the same chant, among the strongest and the weakest, and those who are in between. 
we are all familiar with the concept through our own Jewish messianic visions. These visions imagine all of humankind knowing the perfect good and thus forming a choir singing together, each with our own unique part, but all part of a perfect whole. We serve the good because once we know it, we can't do anything else. My mother tore this concept to shreds. My mother did it using the Republic itself. She showed that, in order to maximize the good of unity of the Republic, Plato was forced to define all other goods as evil. This is why the Republic, with its elimination of individual rights, of non-conforming music or thought, is not a dream, but a nightmare. And my mother showed that every utopian vision must do what Plato's did. In my own analysis of the Torah, I borrow heavily from this. I don't see a unitary good. God himself both creates and rests. There is both Tov and Kadosh. There is a singular God, but he or she does not represent a singular good in our world. This is why in the Chumash the days of Mashiach are days of tremendous blessing, not total achdut or unity. The concept of total unity comes later and is defined, I believe, by those inspired by Plato himself. Often we use the body as our analogy of this achdut. We idealize a unified people like a unified body. We idealize being ruled by a singular understanding of the good, but this isn't how the body works. My mother looked at the regulation of insulin to show that stability and adaptability, which are necessary for life in a constantly changing world, depend on wholly independent systems working at odds with one another. Where utopians point to Plato's choir, my mother pointed to Heraclitus's bow or harp. The beautiful society, the functional and adaptive and persistent society, is formed not by achtut, but by internal tensions. My mother used her mathematics to extend these ideas. First, she showed that the world doesn't function on a continuum. Tiny changes can result in fundamentally different outcomes. This is the butterfly principle. To use analogies from the book, if we poke a pool ball on a pool table, we can pretty accurately predict what it will do. But when we poke a kitten, we have no idea whatsoever. We can basically predict the motions of a planet, but a cloud is another matter. Second, she showed that lags in information and decisions result in uncontrollable oscillations. A tightrope walker can't consciously think about every adjustment. They need those adjustments to happen on a more fundamental level. We might think we can reason through problems, but lags mean that we would always be reacting too late and at the wrong magnitude. Lags necessarily threaten the survival of a centralized system. This is why strong central planning must fail. It is not sufficiently adaptable and so it can only provide the illusion of efficiency and stability. Of course, the limits of central planning were more than just a practical limitation for her. Looking at quantum mechanics, she pointed out that while we can precisely predict the probability of what an individual electron will do, we can't actually say what it will do until it does it. Napoleon might have invaded Russia, but he might not have. Probabilities reveal a truth, and that truth is that our decisions end up defining our world. For my mother, that reality led to a moral obligation. We are obliged to make good choices. But how can we know what is good? A relativist would say that the good is infinitely flexible. But my mother wasn't a relativist. She didn't think all goods were equal and thus equally meaningless. She saw something else. To get there, she turned to science. Those who believe in science believe that there is a unified and simple set of rules that govern our reality and determine it. There is a single total science. 
my mother argued that the existence of that science is itself an article of faith. Science describes and predicts the world, but it is not actually the world, and so we can't know if everything can be reduced to simple scientific rules. That doesn't mean that there is no science. Instead, it means that there are multiple sciences, and each hold truths. As she wrote in the book, as physicists, we are interested in Mozart's mass, velocity, and electromagnetic characteristics. As chemists, we might ask questions about the chemical composition of Mozart's bone, blood, and skin. As psychologists, we ask still other questions. We can see the world in these different ways. We don't have to see conflict. Instead, we can just see many paths to enlightenment. So even though there is not a truth, there is still truth. And my mother applied this idea to the good. There are different measures of the good. There are competing goods. But that does not mean the good is not real or that judgment is not possible. Just like a yardstick is assessed against other yardsticks, good can be assessed against other goods. And human good is not as open-ended as is sometimes imagined. As evidence of this, she pointed out that all but totalitarian societies share common goods. Where anthropologists thought they saw entirely different value systems, what they actually found were simply differences in emphasis. Cultures might prefer peace over truth, but none argue that lying is inherently a good thing. As she wrote, a good man would be a good man across many societies. Those societies where such a man is attacked can be defined as evil. We can know good without defining it, just as we can recognize a beautiful horse without defining what beauty is, or even what a horse is. So how do we measure the good? We do it through our free will. We do it by choosing, which is the one unavoidable activity in our lives. Not every choice is good, even though we all participate in the act of defining the good. Instead, there is a matrix of human good that arises from our choices. As she wrote, if I were a soldier confronting a critical decision in the battlefield, I might ask myself how Admiral Lord Nelson or Horatio would have acted. If I found myself amidst the poor of a large city, I might ask myself how would Mother Teresa act in this situation. The good is not quantifiable, but it is real nonetheless. As this is kind of a seum, I want to end by quoting from the last few pages of her book. Quote, we think we know the distance between Portland and New York because we can assign what we believe is an intersubjectively verifiable number to that distance. And we can visualize the route on a map that draws in two dimensions the surface of the planet on the pages of an atlas. The Inuit, living above the Arctic Circle, do not draw or even use maps. Maps often confuse them. They can, nevertheless, navigate with great precision between campsites hundreds of miles apart, overland in the dark of winter, at negative 40 degrees in blizzard winds. I, who may have memorized the map, am generally lost in a world where compasses don't seem to work, and the sun, if it happens to be out, is going around in little circles. Which one of us knows that distance better? Who measures it better? I can better assign a number to the distance. The Inuit can better locate themselves. My entirely abstract knowledge of that distance is quantifiable, but it is pathetically inferior to the Inuit knowledge if the purpose of the exercise is to find one's way. In much of life, assigning numbers is of considerably less utility than finding one's way. Each of us, as the sum of our choices, is a measure of the good. Plato and Protagoras, Aristotle and Alexander the Great, Billy the Kid and Susan B. Anthony, Moses and Paro, 
Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr., Michelangelo and the green gosher down the street from the Sistine Chapel who lived a quiet life, married, attended church almost every Sunday, and left behind a legacy of kindness and love and grandchildren. Each of us is a measure of the good. On this interpretation, to be human is to choose, and to choose is to measure the good. A human being is beyond measure and beyond price. Nevertheless, although we can't be measured, every human being can be and is judged. And it is because we are persons equally responsible for our choices that we can be judged. We choose and we may be judged for the choices we make. Such judgments can't be reduced to the application of this or that meter stick. There are very few simple criteria for such judgments. We don't judge a Michelangelo painting by measuring patterns on a spectrum analyzer. We judge it as a single work of art. Similarly, God would not be reduced to using weights and measures in judging human beings. The man who serves goodness to the best of his ability with the gifts and talents God has given him is the man of virtue. It has often been pointed out that none of the great philosophers were women. It is less seldom noted, however, that few of the great philosophers were married men with children. Even Rousseau, who had a mistress and fathered six children, sent those children off to an orphanage immediately after birth. Most infants in 18th century orphanages died within months. Why, I ask, would anyone entrust the biological continuation of the species to these men? And yet we look to Plato's Republic and to Rousseau's Emile to learn about educating our children. Would we look to Attila the Hun for advice on landscape gardening? With the exception of Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophers like Maimonides, philosophy and philosophers have not only been abstracted from life, they have made a virtue of being abstracted from life. That, I think, has greatly impoverished philosophy. As philosophers, we should be constantly aware of our own fragility, our own mortality, and our own moral complexity. In Plato's Republic, each person is to do one job, but in real life, we are each stronger for doing many jobs, and our world is stronger as well. Mired down in the day-to-day -day business of living, I am, nevertheless, able to acknowledge my needs and responsibilities as a human being, a woman, a wife, a mother, a teacher, a Jew, and a student of philosophy, even when those needs and responsibilities conflict, as they generally do. Changing diapers and washing dishes gives a person the time to consider such things. Plato sought to transcend the contingencies and limitations of common human experience. I do not. A philosopher should be able to justify the continued pursuit of both the rational and the good in a world that remains contingent and uncertain. That, I believe, is the proper role of philosophy, and it is also the path to the building of better cities. Plato, from his hard-won citadel of philosophical monism, looked out over the city and saw solutions to the problems that define the human condition. Like the vast majority of men and women who dwell in the streets of the city, the men and women who try to live their lives in accordance with relatively ordinary codes of good and bad, truth and falsehood, I see better choices and worse choices, but few opportunities to transcend the human condition and reach certainty. In the conduct of my life, I see choices and not solutions. My mother spoke of the man of virtue. Standing here today, I can say that she was a woman of virtue an ancient chayel. Reading this book, I was amazed to see how much of my own thought came from hers. She influenced me intellectually, spiritually, philosophically, in ways I didn't even realize. If you read my writing, you can see her ideas throughout. My mother was my rav. One of my brothers wrote in relation to this day, my mom is gone. But I don't see that. 
Because of her words and her influence, she is here. Just as in my dream, she is speaking to you all. And I am simply serving as her voice. Thank you for listening. Gilmale Rahami Shokhe Wan Promi